Thank you. Um, the first time I met Richard Doll, he cried. Um, not because he'd just discovered how little I knew about medicine. Um, that would come later. Um, this was an emotional response to um, what he'd seen on the Jarrow Hunger March some 60 years before. And um, as a writer, I thought, this is a tremendous opportunity. Here's a very visceral, visceral man. And um, this is a wonderful window onto the life of a great scientist. And uh, like any writer, you start out with a sense of optimism. And I thought, with a bit of digging, a bit of excavation, um, this should be a breeze. However, um, Richard Doll was far from being an open book. Um, he had a good heart. Uh, he was idealistic, and he wanted to help people. And John Pemberton, one of his colleagues in London in 1930, said, described Richard as being gentle and kind. And that was true. Richard also possessed an emotional detachment. Um, and he didn't really have time for issues outside of science very much. And he wasn't overtly interested, especially when the uh, hammer was down on his science. He didn't have a great deal of time for the lives of other people. One of his colleagues who worked on a doctor's study with Richard in the 1950s said he had a patrician air and he emanated a, an unconscious intimidation. And I think this is true. And indeed, Malcolm Pike, who I wish could be here today, um, one of Richard's original disciples in the 1960s, said that Richard was a scary person to be around. And although it would have surprised Richard, I think, to some extent, if people were frightened of him, as an Irishman, I can say this, but if he wanted to, he could scare the bejesus out of you. Um, also, Richard had an unusual ability to camouflage his emotions. And I remember John Leddingham once told me he was asked to write an obituary of Richard, which he did, and he got a letter back, I think it was for the Times, and the editor said, great CV, but where's the man? So I thought, I've got to do better than that. And um, I thought, right, for a biography, we'll really sort of dig in and excavate his life. And I think if you're writing a biography, you want to place it somewhere in history. And I think biography is a good part of history. However, um, you don't want to, um, I didn't want to put Richard into a, a straitjacket, a kind of a preordained view of what I thought was the social history of modern Britain. But I tried to get a feeling for him, and it was all there when you, when you look at Richard's life. Born in the same year that the Titanic was launched, um, his memories of the First World War, his schooling, the politics, he could remember the general strike, the Jarrow March, communism, the period of the greatest advance in medical science. So I thought that this would be the opportunity to try and write a social history of Britain using Richard, Richard Doll as my metaphor. And I stood outside his house in Montpellier Square in the middle of leafy Knightsbridge. I went into schoolrooms in Westminster School where he studied, and I tried to get the feeling for the ideas that the young Richard Doll was incubating in his mind. Now, Richard Doll has inspired a great many people, so I thought today we could have a look at who and what inspired Richard himself. Now, my book, which will have this picture of Richard on the front, this is when he was in his 50s, when he had power and when he was doing his own work. I like the pencil in his top pocket. Um, my book is called Smoking Kills, The Revolutionary Life of Richard Doll. And today I'm going to talk about 
some of the revolutionary strands in Richard's life, not so much about the later part of his life, for which he is undoubtedly famous, but I want to have a look at those rails of ideas that Richard travelled along. He was fundamentally interested in mathematics and in social medicine. Now, I'm not an evolutionary psychologist, but let's see some of the things that influenced Richard's life and made him one of the great medical investigators of the 20th century. After all, Richard ushered in a new era in medicine, um, the in intellectual ascendancy of medical statistics. It was a revolution, and it was the earlier revolution, I think, the political revolution, that directed him towards his work. Uh, Richard doesn't really look like a revolutionary yet. Um, this is a picture of him. This is Westminster School, which he entered in 1924 when he was 12. Westminster School had been an assembly line of privilege since the 12th century. Um, and Richard, early on, was intelligent. And I can remember him telling me, he was always full of aphorisms. He said, intelligence is very important when you're young. It's defining. But as you get older, the ability to organise your effort and your time becomes more telling. And Richard, as anybody who worked with him will know, was about the most organised person you could meet. Not only did he organise his own time, but he organised other people as well. He wasn't initially drawn to politics. Um, Richard's first um, attraction was to Christian fundamentalism, and he wasn't above going out on his bicycle trying to preach and uh, pursue, if he could, converts. Um, it didn't last so long. He lost his faith sometime when he was about 15, and he told me his brother um, didn't want to be confirmed. Richard had already been confirmed. So um, he thought he'd try and be unconfirmed, and he wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> Unbelievably, he got a letter back, and the Archbishop of Canterbury said, I'm sorry, but once you're confirmed before God, it's irreversible. Um, then he became interested in pacifism. And I know that um, during the First World War, he, he uh, got affected by uh, an uncle of his who uh, had inf used to hold up his finger and showed him how many of the enemy it had killed. And he became under the influence of Dick Shepherd, who was a famous pacifist in London in the 1920s. But he soon moved away from this. And then Richard um, became a member of the Young Communist League, which was founded in 1920. And Westminster School is in this wonderful setting. It's just a, a stone's throw away from the House of Commons and just by Westminster Abbey. And one of the privileges for people studying in the school was to go into the gallery observing the House of Commons debates. And it was there that Richard met, saw people like Keir Hardy, um, Ramsay MacDonald, um, Oswald Mosley, but his favourite was a man called Tom Maxton, who was a member of the Independent Labour Party. And he saw Maxton being thrown out of the House of Commons one day, and he liked Maxton. He said, yes, he'd stand up for what he believed in. He didn't bend. So we could already see in this period, during his schooling, um, where Richard was beginning to try and find himself and try and find himself politically. He was looking for a role to play in the world. And it was this extreme poverty that he saw around London. I mean, there was no poverty where he was brought up. His background was a mix mixture of the conventional upper middle class. His dad was a doctor, but he had a chauffeur. And his mother was rather exotic. She was a concert pianist. 
And if you go to Montpellier Square, it's, you know, you've really arrived. So he didn't see much there. And in fact, he made friends with some children in Hyde Park, but his parents didn't like it. He thought they were, they were street children, and they thought they should keep him away. But as he grew up, um, Richard began to mingle more in London society, and he began to see some of the deprivation um, that was endemic in the British Empire. And London was the biggest city, of course, in the British Empire. And it was the, this great shining light for the rest of the world to look at. And of course, Richard, when he eventually became a, a medical student in 1931, um, the poverty he saw around Lambeth had a radicalizing effect on him. And um, this began to give him an idea of what he wanted to do. He wanted to change society. And he wanted to change it from the establishment British society, which he saw as anarchy and uh, synonymous with human waste. Um, Richard Dahl, believe it or not, was a, a, a revolutionary of um, the bourgeois kind. And um, one of the areas where he fostered, believe it or not, his revolutionary zeal was on the playing fields, the cricket playing fields of England. I don't know if you can see from the back here, if you can pick Richard out, um, but it's a, a rather splendid picture of him. And one of his friends here in this picture didn't in fact um, survive the Second World War. So the 30s, I think, were the formative decade in, in Richard's political makeup. And uh, the two organizations that Richard was a member of, one was the Socialist Medical Association, um, under the great guiding principles of Christopher Addison and David Stark Murray, and the surgeon and MP Somerville Hastings. And uh, Richard was making speeches in the 1930s for the building of bigger houses, more houses, and he was campaigning for a, an embryonic national health service, getting up on platforms and putting his name on the line. Um, and this, the 1930s was a, a great formation of the British left. It was a social nexus where like-minded people could meet. It was where he met Joan, Joan Dahl, his wife, in the um, Socialist Medical Association and London hospitals, and also the communist movement became very idealistic. Richard himself didn't go to Spain in the 1930s, but as I mentioned at the very top of my talk, he, was, he went on the Jarrow March, him and a very bourgeois friend of his, and they were on the march from Pontefract in Yorkshire um, down to Chesterfield. That was in 1936, so he hadn't qualified, um, and he was treating the blistered feet of the, of the walk walkers. Many of his other friends, Archie Cochrane, of course, who Richard knew in London left-wing medicine, um, did go to Spain. And um, Richard was tempted, but he wasn't yet independent of his parents. But he was meeting these people, and they were all looking forward to the future and trying to um, use medicine to uh, benefit the many and not the few. The other organization and the other influence that was important to Richard was a, a Swiss doctor, a physician, called Henry Ziegerist. And Henry Ziegerist wanted to have a people's war for health. He was a visionary, and he, he said this, we still need even more, a scientific physician, well-trained in laboratory and clinic, but we need more. We need a social physician who, conscious of the social functions of medicine, considers himself in the service of society. We have reached a time 
in which the physician must assume the leadership and the struggle for the improvement of conditions. This is exactly the kind of thinking that Richard had. And Richard was a member of the uh, Ziegerist Society in London up until the 1950s. The, um, the then London chairman of it was Clem McPherson's father. I don't know if Clem's here. Yes, Angus McPherson, of course, who Richard said was a rather rigid Stalinist, as he put it. Um, the other defining thing for Richard that we can see in the 1930s, that he was to take and travel along in the future, was his, uh, his love of statistics. And seeing what statistics could do in the future. And when you read his first ever paper, which he wrote in 1936, it's quintessential doll, and it's something that he could have written in 1996. Um, he said this, Statistics is essentially a practical science. Its methods have been elaborated for the benefit of all scientific workers, physicians equally with economists and mathematicians. Were physicians to abide more strictly to the rules of statistics, they would find it very much easier to assess values of their methods of treatments. This is prototypical Dole. And um, he uh, began to try and use statistics and try and persuade people that statistics was the way forward for him. He said, to facilitate this, this is in his first ever paper, a qualified statistician should be available to cooperate with clinical workers at any center of research. Not only would he be able to help in evaluating the results obtained, but he could also help beforehand in designing the experiment to suit the conditions. Advantage would accrue to the medical profession, for they would have to waste less time in disproving ill-founded claims, and to the general public, for they would be less liable to suffer from the continued use of a useless remedy. Um, so Richard, by the time he'd qualified in 1937, had already defined what he was interested in, and he already had a political idea of how he might realize it. Now, Richard told me that um, when he entered the Second World War um, in September the 3rd, 1939, when war broke out, Richard was already a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps. And soon after joining the army, Richard had um, defined himself, according to the army, as being what, what they call a member of the awkward squad. Um, and one of the things when he was in France, he was there from um, early September until uh, Dunkirk, where, of course, Richard has written about and he played a large part in the evacuation of Dunkirk, or at least with his own group of men. Um, Richard had already tried to break down some of the segregation that was emblematic in the army. And this marked him out, really. And um, later, when he was uh, sent abroad, he had a an extraordinary war where he went to Cairo in 1941, where in um, Archie Cochrane's memorable book, he can remember Richard and all of the other doctors going across the Mediterranean singing, you'll get no promotion on this side of the ocean. Um, but when Richard was in Cairo, um, he beca became an outspoken member of the Communist Party, and this marked him out. He was introduced, strangely, to Walter Monckton, who was the Director General of the Ministry of Information. And um, 
Richard met him and um, told him that he agreed with a recent poll in the army in Cairo. They'd elected a mock Labour government and that he agreed that the, there should be more communist ministers than had been elected, but there'd been four communist ministers elected. Also, while Richard was in um, Cairo, he made an unsuccessful attempt to join the paratroop regiment. Now, there were two reasons why uh, Richard wanted to join the paratroop regiment. One was the excitement of battle. He wanted to get there. But also, for British communists, once Russia joined the war in 1941, they wanted to really ideologically take the fight to, the Na to Nazis. And um, so Richard applied to the paratroop regiment. Unfortunately, um, his application was turned down because they said he didn't have enough teeth. Now, whether people thought he was going to nibble at the jackboots of the Germans, I don't know. Um, but also in 1941, um, Richard was carrying out um, brilliant medicine as well. He was head of a, an infectious disease ward in Cairo, and he treated the first case of smallpox and the first case of typhus in uh, the British Army in Egypt. Um, also, as a, a reward for this, he was given the privilege of making a broadcast back to England via the BBC. And he told me that he didn't want to say, um, it was obviously to his mother, he didn't want to say, uh, hello, mum, I'm doing very well. He decided that uh, he wanted to say something political. So he said, um, when you give my books away, this is to his mother, and this is during the period where people were giving saucepans away, fences away, books away, all for the national effort. Um, he said... Um, don't give my left book clubs away, as I shall want them after the war. And this is true. Um, also, um, one of uh, Richard's friends from the London days was a man called James Klugman. And Klugman was working for MI4, as it then was, in Cairo. And Richard went to see him to see if he could help. Now, Klugman was part of the Cambridge Apostle movement, who were later to play a big part in Richard's life. He had, after all, gone to school with Kim Philby, in Westminster School, they weren't particularly friendly, but it was always this fissure around Richard of this Cambridge group, um, which Richard um, unfortunately got associated with. Um, and uh, Klugman, in fact, got Richard uh, to take part in a, a raiding party that went down to Crete in 1942. Uh, nothing happened to Richard, but he was always trying to put himself in a position to try and advance the, the war, and especially if there was a possibility of trying to advance the communist cause in the war. As Richard was to find out, your past follows you around. Now, certainly when Richard came back from the Second World War, he was definitely followed around London. He had an MI5 shadow. Um, unfortunately, I haven't been able to get his MI5 file. It's very difficult. I don't know if any of you have been following about how Eric Hobsbawm, who knows he has a file, but he hasn't been able to get it either. Um, but this was certainly a problem. I think even if Richard said the war didn't change him, I think it did, but no other generation has had to forfeit so many of their creative years for the, national, for the cause of national survival since then. So it was a big bunch of time taken out of his creative life. And when he came back to London in 1945, um, it was difficult to get jobs. As I wrote in my obituary of Richard, um, when he died in 2005, 
Richard had worked at the Royal Postgraduate Medical Hospital in Hammersmith before the Second World War, but there seemed to be a kind of a dislike um, between John McMichael and him. Um, Richard thought it may have been uh, because McMichael's wife left him and went to uh, live with a, a communist poet, um, Carrot, and he may, have, uh, he may have taken against Richard like that. But Richard couldn't get a job um, back in the Royal Postgraduate Medical School. Fortunately for Richard, on the 7th of May 1945, while appropriately singing, We'll Keep the Red Flag Flying, um, he bumped into his friend Joan Faulkner, um, who of course he knew before the war. And um, this was be the beginning of a fantastic love affair um, that was to last for over 50 years. And uh, it was a completely unexpected meeting. And um, I suppose it's what you could call the play of chance, um, which is a phrase we all associate with Richard Science. The influence of Joan on Richard is hard to overestimate. Um, Joan, like-minded communist, the same humanitarian ideals, and indeed um, she was to become the most influential woman in the Medical Research Council. And indeed she introduced Richard to Francis Avery Jones, where he was to get his first job after the Second World War. In fact, the struggle for jobs was so difficult after the Second World War, that Richard's mother went to at least one um, radiologist that I know of and asked him if he had a, had a job for Richard. And I think it'd be quite interesting if our own mothers were our career advisors, where we'd end up. But uh, no longer in uniform, in 1945, Richard threw himself into the general election of 1945. And Philip Darcy Hart, the hero who died... I think two years ago. I, I met him, he was 105, um, and I think he may have lived to be 107. Um, he said, I could remember Dahl in 1945, those blue eyes, the red beret, he was a communist. He wanted to change society. And this is true, this is what he certainly wanted to do. And uh, I think it's difficult now for people to imagine what it was like for people on the extreme left in British politics in the period from um, particularly 1945 and six onwards through the early 40s, just what the watchers and just what people could do to you in terms of what you could do with jobs and how they could um, isolate you socially. Richard always says that Francis Avery Jones was a great influence on him, and I suppose he owed him the fact that he gave him a job. But it's, it's difficult, I think, to see what scientifically that Avery Jones handed on to him. He was only two years older than Richard. He was uh, clever. Richard said as a doctor, Avery Jones had a great skill. People felt better just by seeing him. Um, but one of the things that uh, the job with Avery Jones gave Richard was a chance to feel the atmosphere of the central Middlesex Hospital. It was an extraordinary place. And it gave him a chance to meet uh, like-minded men generally, and um, one of the people who really was influential on Richard was Horace Jules, who was the medical director of the Central Middlesex, who had brought the hospital up to this incredibly high standing, almost to the standing of the, um, the London teaching hospitals. And of course, he was a tremendous agitator 
um, with the Ministry of Health in the 1950s for Richard's cause and a fight against tobacco and a smoking addiction. Also there was uh, Richard Asher, the beautiful writer, and of course Jerry Morris, who was the first uh, professor of social medicine in London. Jerry is still alive. He believes the epidemiology he writes. He writes about the epidemiology of exercise. And um, I think uh, Jerry Morris is 95, something like that. And of course, he's booked the uses of epidemiology I'm sure you've, you've all got. And um, it was interesting. Here was Jerry Morris, Richard Dahl, two of the most politically minded doctors in a post-war era, both out in the central Middlesex, but they didn't really get on. Jerry was antagonistic to the Communist Party. He came from the south side of Glasgow, where he said socialism came with your nappies. And the debates between Dahl, the sort of Russian communist, that kind of idea of what society, how it should progress, and a homegrown socialism of Jerry Morris didn't go well together. And in fact, they decided that they'd make a pact not to discuss politics. It seems extraordinary. However, one of the great things and the fortunate things about uh, meeting Avery Jones was that Richard conducted this study on the occupational factors in uh, peptic and duodenal ulcers. And it was the completeness of this study. He managed to follow up 98.4% of all of the, the people he had to interview, even, I think, getting up a, um, a haystack to interview a recalcitrant farm worker in 1948. And um, this got him noticed. And it got him noticed by Bradford Hill. Now, he knew Bradford Hill slightly earlier because he'd enrolled in this uh, a short course in medical statistics called um, Essential Statistics, I think. I'm sure Richard would know. Um, and um, so he knew him. And when Bradford Hill was reading through this study carried out by Avery Jones and by Richard Dahl, um, when he was asked to carry out an investigation into the inexorable rise of lung cancer, he thought that Richard Dahl might be a person who would be a useful assistant. And somewhat prophetically, Hill wrote, I regard Richard Dahl as a very good worker to whom it is well worthwhile giving a wider experience in medical statistical work with an eye to the future. As you know, the number of medical persons who take it all kindly to careful statistical work is still small. Now, Richard, he was writing his own letters as well, but instead of opening doors, his letters were closing them. Um, in 1948, the British Medical Association was still antagonistic to the ideas of a national health service. Um, Guy Drain, the president of the uh, BMA, uh, was a, a, a virulent opponent of the, of the NHS. And in fact, um, this was a, an unedifying period in, in British social history. But Richard decided to reject caution for direct action. And he decided that he would... Um, write a letter to the Times um, uh, saying effectively that um, the NHS was a great thing and uh, the letter itself in effect blacklisted him from his alma mater which was St Thomas's Hospital and even if he didn't want to the letter he wrote to the Times on the 19th of March 
um, ensured his medical career would be in research <clears throat> and not in hospital medicine. He said, this is Dole's letter, may I, in closing, make in my turn a, dog a dogmatic statement. Even though I cannot describe myself as a teacher, and that is that if a human approach to the patient is desired, there is much that the voluntary hospitals can learn from the better municipal ones. It was a horrifying experience after the war to be brought again face to face with the cavalier manner in which some doctors dispose of a patient's hopes of life in a conversation at the end of the bed. There is, I submit, nothing in the act which will dehumanize medicine. There is a lot which we all have to learn before medicine becomes thoroughly human. Um, Dahl had in fact seen uh, Nye Bevan speak on the 9th of February 1948 in the House of Commons when Bevan said, uh, we are still able to do the most civilised thing in the world to put the welfare of the sick in front of every other consideration. Um, Joan and Richard, the only pamphlet, the only book, the only thing they ever wrote together was their wonderful pamphlet called Humanised to Hospitals, which I managed to get from the Marx Memorial Library. And they wrote this in 1948. Their names aren't on the paper, but um, one of the central themes of the, the pamphlet was the patient's comfort is part of his cure. And in the last week of Richard's life, I went up to London and I got a copy of the pamphlet and I gave it to him, which he read in the John Radcliffe, and he was very pleased to read it. And then he said, um, I see some of our recommendations have still to be implemented, <laughs> which I thought was fine. Um, now, the most important discovery in the history of cancer epidemiology is the carcinogenic effect of tobacco. And smoking forms the arc uh, of Richard's story as a scientist. And uh, the most important scientific relationship in Richard Doll's life was that with Austin Bradford Hill. Because no Hill, no Doll. Doll would have gone on to do something good and great, perhaps. Um, but he wouldn't have gone on, I would imagine, to have um, the worldwide acclaim that he so justly deserves. Um, now, as Hill was later to say, sorry about this photograph, but it's one of my favourites. Um, Hill said that um, when he met Doll, he knew that Doll had been obsessional. He said he'd been obsessional about religion, he'd been obsessional about politics. He said, I made him obsessional about medical research. And, when you're obsessional about medical research, there isn't time for anything else. And if you could see this picture properly, um, this is great. This is Richard on a beach reading some um, computer printout. And I, I can remember asking Joan, his wife, I said, was Richard a family man? She said, um, hmm, he liked his family, but he was very busy with his work. And so it comes at some cost. Surprisingly, um, there's still no a biography of Austin Bradford Hill. And really there should be. Um, because modern British epidemiology forms one of those unique chains in, in British or world medicine, really, in that it forms an apostolic succession. From Major Greenwood, the pencil went on to Hill. From Hill, it went to Doll. And from Doll, it's gone on to Richard Peter each one building on the achievements of the other and each one expanding the frontiers of the discipline. There's really nothing else like it in British medical research. Um, politically, um, 
Doll and Hill, um, they couldn't have been more different. But in their intellectual integrity, scientific rigor, the clarity of their thought, uh, they formed a fantastic unity. Um, now, Hill was a high Tory. I remember Ian's here, and he told me to go and see Hill's daughter, which I did. And when you're writing a biography, you, you always have to check things, but you never know if you can completely rely on anyone. And, um, but there was a feeling, there was a feeling between um, Richard Dole and Austin Bradford Hill. Bradford Hill's wife, Queenie, was reactionary. She didn't really like Richard and Joan very much. Um, and Hill was a Tory, he, but really they were both patricians, you know, they were both serious-minded men. But um, one thing happened in the 1950s, which I think is important, and I, I know it happened, I know it happened because Richard told me, but um, I don't think he would have told me unless it was, uh, it was true. But in the 1950s, uh, Richard and Joan decided they wanted to adopt children. And um, as he was... Uh, by then a full-time member of the Medical Research Council, Richard asked uh, Bradford Hill if he'd write him a reference so that to say that Richard was a, a reliable and a trusted custodian, a, a reliable person. And, and uh, Hill's rejection was as truthful as it was hurtful. He said, no, I don't think communists should adopt children. It wouldn't be right. Now, whether this was because he was a Christian, Hill, or because he was a Tory, I don't really know. Richard said in that Richard way, um, I forgave him for it eventually, I think. <laughs> um, however, he always said to me, any skill I have in the subject, I owe entirely to Hill's tuition. I've never heard him say anything against Hill. Other people say he did, I don't know. Um, so in the time I knew him, he always spoke, spoke fondly of Hill, and indeed at the end of Hill's life, it was Dahl he chose to phone late at night when he was in a nursing home in Cumbria. But <clears throat> it was an important thing, and it was a rejection, and these things went deep with Richard. Things went deep with Richard if they affected Joan. But collectively, Dahl and Hill changed the health of the nation, and for that we should all be thankful. Of course... As Richard told me in the last year of his life, the papers that they published together were always Doll and Hill. And really, Doll was Hill's student. He was 17 years younger than him. Um, and he said if his name had been Pill and not Doll, the papers would have been Hill and Pill. He knew that his reputation would have been very different. So he was lucky, and he knew he was lucky. Um, one of the things that Richard had, which is distinctive about him, intuitively, Richard could see a pattern. He could see a pattern in people, and he could see a pattern in disease. He was to do this later with Peter Armitage. He was to do it later with cancer in five continents. Um, he was to do it later um, with uh, his idea in, in the rock carling lecture in 1967. But in 1950 in Britain, the first time the number of deaths from lung cancer exceeded those of tuberculosis. And in 1953, based on the temporal and geographical observations, Dahl made a prediction. Based on the figures him and, and Hill had, had got, the data in front of them, 
and bearing in mind one of Richard's great aphorisms is, the value of a scientific hypothesis lies less in the number of observations that it can explain than in the number that it can successfully predict. And in 1953, Dahl wrote a paper and he said, I think, based on what we know, in 1973, 20 years from now, the number of deaths from lung cancer will be 25,000. And Dahl was wrong. It was 26,000. So he got it. Um, politics um, for Richard were always moving in parallel with his science. And in 1951, Burgess and Maclean um, eventually left Britain and uh, went to the Soviet Union. They were tipped off by Kim Philby before they could be um, interviewed. And um, once again, the Cambridge Apostles were in the news. And in that same year, Richard launched a new pressure group. Uh, and he launched it in the pages of The Lancet. It was called the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. This was made up of people, Joan was a member, uh, Ian Gilliland, Alec Comfort, who some of you may know from uh, The Joy of Sex, The Gourmet Guide to Lovemaking. Um, uh, who else was in it? Lionel Penrose, all of these people. It, it wasn't wholly communist. Mostly it was. It was a, a fusion of communists and Quakers. And the whole idea, the, the talk at the time was that America, if it acted now, could have a first strike against the Soviet Union. Take out the Soviet Union before the Soviet Union had their, their own H-bomb. This was before CND, before um, Operation Gandhi, the Committee of 100, or um, before the uh, Russell-Einstein Manifesto. And uh, it's quite interesting. In 17th of February, 1951, Richard Dahl, the first president of the uh, uh, Medical Association for the Prevention of War, said, it is not, in our opinion, true that the sole danger of war rests with Russian aggressiveness. It was obviously, I mean, there were communist organizations like busmen for peace and bus conductors for peace. So it was another one where he was making himself open and identifiable um, um, to, the, to the state. And this was a very difficult time after the Ber Berlin airlift. This was the sort of apogee of the Cold War and its deepest permafrost. This took some bravery to get out there and do that. Um, but these men were and women were determined. Also in uh, this period, in Dole, in between 1951 and I think 1955, he wrote 26 scientific papers, um, some by himself and some not. And the variety of his, his research um, got him noticed. And he, uh, he had a phone call um, from the United States of America, and he was offered a job at Harvard University to be the head of the School of Public Health. Um, this has been a tremendous appointment for him, um, and uh, anybody would have taken it. In fact, Brian McMahon did a, a fantastic job. And um, John Enders, who of course shared a Nobel Prize for his work on polio in 1954, came to see Richard at his, the statistical unit and said to him, will you come to America and take this job? It's a great opportunity. And Richard looked at him and said, not as long as you've got Joseph McCarthy, I won't. Now, in the 1960s, <clears throat> Harold Macmillan made a famous speech about the winds of change 
blowing through the continent of Africa. And one of the people who was really influential in Richard Doll's life was Harold Himsworth, who was the secretary of the MRC. And Himsworth wanted Richard to go to Kenya to have a look and investigate the reports of the variations in heart disease in Kenya. And Richard wanted to go. But at the time, it was in the aftermath, or in the time, it was of the Mau Mau uprisings. And the British government uh, decided that Dole wasn't allowed to go to sensitive colonies. They thought he might frighten the horses, as it were. So even then, I want to show you this. I don't know if you can see this, but um, this photograph was taken in September 1957. And it's an important one for me. In the book, <clears throat> I had to write about Alice Stewart. Um, I had a compassion for Alice, and I thought she was wasn't treated fairly and you know she changed medical practice and she was a great woman this meeting here is the international correspondent club which eventually became the uh, epidemiology one but in 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 the photograph alice is up here as she would be marginalized on the side joan doll will pickles famous gp from yorkshire and even though this is september 1957 richard is the only man not wearing a dicky bow or a collar and tie. Still the kind of bohemian communist. Um, but I, uh, the fact that I, I wanted to sort of finish up because um, I wanted to finish in that period of 1956, 1957, because in 56, politics really filled the air. We had Khrushchev's uh, speech denouncing Stalin the Suez Crisis and the Hungarian Uprising. And it was the Hungarian Uprising that really brought the communist dream to an end in many of the Western European countries. Not all of them, of course. And um, there was a tremendous exodus from the Communist Party as Russian tanks rolled over Hungarian heads. And um, Richard didn't leave in this exodus in October 56. He stayed on until 1957, um, hoping um, that the, uh, the sort of authoritarian bite um, would ease, but it didn't. And um, Dole left the Communist Party and he evoked the language of Leon Trotsky and he said, um, I've not left the Communist Party. The Communist Party has left me. Um, emotionally, Dole was prone to ideas, but not to excitement. And I think he probably learned in the period after I'm talking, he learned under the influence of Joan and Hill um, to control his campaigning fervor. And after that, we'd be see, we see him becoming more judicious. Now, Richard, I don't think, ever ran away from his scientific discoveries, but he didn't always campaign openly on them. And I think most of you know the reason why. Um, but Dole, I think, was a true revolutionary because he produced a revolution in medical thinking. And um, when you're writing a book, things always jump out at you. And uh, I remember reading the play, but in 1956, the year that uh, the communist dream really came to an end, Look Back in Anger was being performed in the Royal Court Theatre in London. And one of the lines from Osborne's play is that there are no more great good causes. Well, Richard Dole had found his, and uh, he found the next revolutionary cause, 
the prevention of cancer. Um, in 1997, believe it or not, the BMJ described Richard as perhaps Britain's most eminent doctor. Um, but what sacrifice and what achievement and what a revolutionary life. And I hope my book is able to get that story across. So, thank you so much.